We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of release of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars on this special re-release issue of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. This album had such a huge impact on rock and roll and pop culture. From the summer of 71 through its release on June 16, 1972, Ken Scott and David Bowie had been up to a lot. Let's just say that. And we didn't know how much until we heard Ziggy. And Marcus, the more things change, the more they stay the same. When we released this episode about this album originally, we were sponsored by Crooked Eye Brewery, and we're happy to add Boldfoot Socks to our sponsorship now. It's a special re-release of our classic episode about the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars as we celebrate its 50th anniversary since release. Also in the works here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, an episode discussion about all of the amazing albums that came out 50 years ago. Looking forward to that one, Marcus. Me too. 1972 was a barn burner for rock and roll music. <laughs> Hey, Marcus. Yes? There's a line in rock and roll that when it's said or sung will set off dozens, maybe hundreds of little synaptic fires in your brain. You know what that line is? No, but I expect you to fire my synaptics. I get goosebumpy every time I hear that line, every time I hear that song, every time I hear anything from that album. It just fires everything in me. Yeah, me too. And you know what's funny is when we would always listen to the end of that song, you just thought it was the end of a song. And in, over a course of time, we learned as rock music fans that it was also the end of the Spiders from Mars in a way. Yeah, but you didn't think about it until it hit you. You were like, what? Oh. Like that second wave, right? Yep. Like, did he? <laughs> you know, just kind of look at him like after the fact. It's one of those, what? <laughs> <laughs> but, the whole Ziggy experience, the the making of the album, the getting there, the setting the stage, all these elements are all moving into place. And they deliver this album with the band, The Spiders from Mars, of course, with uh, your favorite guitarist, Mick Ronson, awesome. Trevor Boulder on the bass, yeah. Woody Wood Mancy on the drums. They were the Spiders. Bowie was their de facto leader, whipping them into a frenzy every night on stage. The music that came out of the album. The music that came off those stages takes them to one place and an event that shocked the rock and roll world. That night was the end of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and nobody knew it until Bowie said it. Everybody was shocked. Everybody. This has been one of the greatest tours of our life. We really... I, I first, I'd like to thank the band... I'd like to thank our road crew, and I'd like to thank our lighting people. Uh, of all the shows on this tour, this, this particular show will remain with us the longest, because not only, is it, not only is it the last show of the tour, but it's the last show that we'll ever do. Thank you.
Then we come to find out after the fact that Mick Ronson and the manager, Tony DeFries, were the only other two people who knew about it. But it shocked everybody. And I'm sure that the crowd and the, you know, the audience at the concert were like, oh, that's just Bowie shocking people. Oh, that's just Bowie being edgy, not really knowing what was happening. It well, ma- there was no warning. There was no warning. So the crowd just sitting there enjoying that they know it's the last night of the Ziggy Stardust tour, not knowing, like you said, nobody really knew that he was going to say this. It could have been the exhaustion that caused him to collapse at the garden when he was playing in the U.S. Could have been any number of elements involved. Could have been the entangled web of finances with Tony DeFreeze as well and everything that was going on with Main Man even at that point. So it was also a most meteoric year for David Bowie. And tired? I don't think most people understand what tired is. You get to an end of a tour and when you get to the end of the tour and there you are, you're in London, so all you got to do is basically finish and go home and and spend time with your friends or whatever, Bowie just basically said, that's it, we're breaking up. And Bowie went through a lot of changes through the years. There were always chameleon-like changes through the phases. But this was the second, maybe third kind of a change that he'd gone through when you think about the pre-Ziggy Bowie and then the early Bowie, who was just as comfortable walking around in pants and shirt as a dress. Not that that would change, but you understand what I'm saying. There was those early days when it was more like a musical collective, more in in the time when Lawrence Myers was involved. True. And this is an example of how David Bowie's mind worked. He would do something and then he would get bored with it and then he would change and evolve. And my guess is, is once he's created these characters or personas or images or whatever pop culture faction he wanted to impact in some way, he was already thinking or getting ready to set up the next thing that he was going to do because his mind seemed to work that way. And watching the Ziggy Star documentary that talks about this concert and then some of the other things like recording the album. David Bowie back then would only do three or four takes because after that he would get bored. So to keep his interest or his attention, everything had to be done in three or four takes. And the vocals from Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, the album, almost every single one of them was a first take recording. So that means means he hit it first take. That says a lot about his vocal talent, which I don't know if he gets enough credit for sometimes, but that dude was insanely talented vocally. To offer a little perspective, there were oftentimes even on the best Beatles records where there would be 12 or 15 takes, sometimes even more. So first take is almost legendarily unheard of, and to get bored with it is part of what we're going to see if we do a longer look at David Bowie when we do. One of the things that I think that made him chameleon-like throughout his career was that need for change, for regeneration, for being challenged as an artist. And we don't need to get into all that today because we got to talk about Ziggy here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. We've kind of like drifted into talking about all the end game stuff, the things that happened at the end of the tour. And in the second half today, Marcus, we've discussed just talking about the music because that's what it was really all about. The excitement level that was raised, the shows, the increasing number of sold-out shows. Not always the case, by the way. Tony was a guy who, as a manager, would try to make it, you know, appear bigger and play a bigger house than they were sure they could fill. Because then if he filled it, 
it looked great and he did really well financially. But a lot of times they ended up papering houses early on, even at the beginning of the Ziggy Stardust tour until the mania kicked in. Yeah, the label was forking out money on the assumptive fact that David Bowie was going to become a big, huge rock star. And his manager played a big role in that because his manager was able to convince the label to continue to throw them money and give them the full rock star treatment, even though he had not quite reached that level yet. But he definitely knew where he wanted to go. When we do the bigger Bowie episode, we'll discuss all that stuff and all the nuance and the personality intertwining that goes on along the way. But here we are. We're talking about Ziggy Stardust, the legendary album here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. And we kind of got started by talking about the end, including the night where he announces on stage, unbeknownst to all, except for a couple, that they're ending the Ziggy thing. They're breaking up the band. And initially when that word got out, I remember I was old enough to remember the, the emotions of the fans. They thought maybe this was it. You know, they finally got Bowie to be like this superstar in all parts of the U.S., all growing in all parts of, of the rock and roll world. And now he's going to retire. Nobody could believe it. There was a lot of misunderstanding because the news traveled differently in 1973 than it does, say, today. <laughs> Just a wee bit. You had to wait for Rolling Stone to tell you what actually fucking happened. That was the circumstances as, as Bowie kind of got burned out a little bit and put the kibosh on the Ziggy part of his career. But focusing the fans and the momentum and the energy towards what he really meant. See, I didn't even use the quote unquote. But he really <laughs> meant that Ziggy was going to retire. Tire. And let's talk about Ziggy, the character, because there was always a, a lot of conjecture about who Ziggy was, really. And in some ways, it's a compendium of different real life characters and a little bit of Bowie injection of himself, etc. into it as well. Yeah, I think it's definitely somebody that Bowie wanted to be or envisioned himself as or part of who he is or who he was at that time. And like you said, it was interesting how the whole concept came to be. I'm going to be presumptive and say that I think David Bowie had the idea for the Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars concept ready when he recorded The Man Who Sold the World because of the whole story of Ziggy coming here to warn humans that Earth is five years away from destruction and so I think Ziggy started during that time period but then with the album and the creation of the Spiders from Mars he was able to really bring that concept to life. And the Spiders played on the previous record too so there was momentum building there. There was always this thing that because of the line about Ziggy played guitar that it was about Hendrix you know the screwed up hairdo and the whole nine yards but Bowie later revealed that the song was based on uh, Vince Taylor, who had a short but not very successful career, who also craved the spotlight, craved the limelight. And so there was the similarities there between Vince Taylor and Ziggy Stardust. And that's part of the equation, too, because that really was the inspiration. Well, my baby drove up
but look at how people would apply things. Nobody knew about Vince Taylor in 1972-73. We later learned about it, and he's now a seminal figure in the story. But that's kind of where it all came from, the legendary Stardust Cowboy, Ziggy Stardust. Did you know who the Stardust Cowboy was before all of this, like we started learning about the creation of it? Had you even heard of this musician? No, and I never really got the connection on all that. I guess a lot of suburban rock and roll kids were transfixed on the Hendrix angle. I took a trip in a Jiminy spacecraft And I thought about you I passed through the shadow of Jupiter And I thought about you I shot my space gun Oh, I really felt blue Three flying saucers parked under the stars. A winding stream, moon shining down on some little town. And with each beam, the same old dream. I took a trip in a Jiminy spacecraft, and I thought about you. And when I heard about Vince Taylor, that's all I needed to know. Bowie told me what that was all about. He wasn't always very forthcoming with his interviews. He liked to maintain an air of mystery, knowing full well what he was up to, knowing he was going to go do this big tour behind Diamond Dog that would turn into the legendary album that was recorded in my hometown. As a Philadelphia person, to finally meet your hero, David Bowie, backstage on the stairwell at the Tower Theater where David Live was recorded in 1974. All I could tell you, it was one of those rock and roll circles that gets completed, you know? Um, Bowie's meant everything to me through different phases of my life. Sometimes it took me a little time to catch up to where he was musically along the way. That it all came around to that last night for him at the Tower Theater. On his way out the door, he stops and meets a couple listeners with me. And then I get to talk to him for a minute and just look into those eyes. And I could still feel it. He knew that he was looking at talking to someone who had the level of fanboy in him that I do. He was that kind of person. And you could feel it in a moment like that. And I'm really glad I had the chance to do that. I want to thank my pals Sean and Dan for hooking that up. They knew that that was for me. And it was definitely on that completing the circle of rock and roll thing that we try to do sometimes, putting it all together. And I just wanted to put that in there because to me, in some ways, Ziggy will always be and will always be among us because we lived in the same time as David Bowie, dude. We really got to experience his golden years, which were a long period of time. And that was the only time you got to meet David Bowie. You didn't get to meet him at any of the other radio events in the 80s or 90s. I was there with MMR at the uh, Glass Spider tour. I was around that whole thing, but I didn't get to meet him. For that one there and for the show he did with Nine Inch Nails, it was more important to me to be in position for the show Mm -hmm. than it was to be backstage. That's where I was with all this. I had 12th row for the Glass Spider and I was in the pit for for the Nine Inch Nails show because it was at the 
like place in Camden where the first 15 rows are turned into a pit sometimes. Yeah. Good times. Quite a moment there, especially poignant at the Tower Theater, which is part of the Ziggy Stardust tour. You know, the thing I didn't realize till we started doing all of our research on this is that on the first pass in 72 into the U.S., he did not come to Philadelphia, which is one of the hotbeds of Bowie then and now, until the very end of the tour. He played three nights at the Tower Theater before they went to Europe, then came back. This is how big he was. Well, he was playing single nights everywhere else or double nights everywhere else. He did three nights in Philly at the Tower Theater, goes to Europe, goes back to start in New York, and then comes right back in February and does six shows in three days at the Tower Theater. So when we're talking about the Tower Theater and its importance in the bonding of Bowie and Philadelphia specifically, other towns were getting a night or two. We were getting six shows in three days and four shows here and there. And that would continue to be the case even into the 80s when he would do multiple nights. Yeah, he had a really great love affair with Philadelphia for a long time. I mean, he recorded Young Americans at Sigma Sound, so... And the story we told about the night that Ed Shockey took Bruce Springsteen to see him in the yeah. studio and all that stuff. I mean, that's at that Sigma Studio right. sessions where he's recording Young Americans. So it's all part of the history of rock and roll. And this is why we get so goddamn jacked up about it because you're sitting here sometimes and you're in the middle of it and you've done the research. And when you start putting both of our halves together, it's like uh, the super friend powers engage. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll, and we're talking all about Ziggy Stardust, the album, and the man, and the tour, and all the that. The sudden and ending. Told, yeah. Well, what we found out was the, it was the uh, emergence of the Thin White Duke over the next couple records. And uh, there's even a reference later in his career where he references lyrically, it's the return of the Thin White Duke. Like he was going back in some ways to the era that comes right after Ziggy Stardust, leading through Diamond Dogs and Young America. Americans and station to station before heading off to Berlin. The Berlin era was crazy. Iggy Pop was there. Nick Cave was there. Will you promise me that we will do an episode about the Berlin day so we can finally talk about the birthday party and all that? We yes. have to do that sometime in 2021, okay? Yes. yes. I think right now I'm getting thirsty, dude. So let's take a break. Come back. We'll talk about the whole rest of the process of putting together the record and putting it out. We'll talk about the songs that were the album when Ziggy played guitar. We're going to stop for a word from our sponsors and then return with part two of this re-released episode here on The Imbalanced History. You know, Marcus, this time of year, I wear shoes less... Uh, you wear socks less, but what I've been putting on socks lately, it's the boldfoot socks that we got that I've been wearing the most. I love my boldfoot socks. I've been wearing the headliner royal blue and gold athletic sock when I've been riding my bike or taking a spin class. They're great. My feet aren't all gnarly afterwards. My feet feel good. They're not over sweaty. There's no extra moisture. They do a really good job keeping my feet as fresh as can be after doing a good hard spin or a nice long ride. Love them. And thanks to the gang at Boldfoot for offering a Father's Day special 25% off the entire store now through Father's Day at boldfoot.com. Put in the code DAD25 to save 25%. Pretty good deal and a good way to get Dad's feet into a pair of Boldfoot socks. Also, 5% of all profits go to the organization Team Foster, which helps get veterans 
service dogs. And this is a wonderful charity that Boldfoot is working with. Veteran-owned and operated, so naturally they're supporting a veteran's cause like this. Slide on over to boldfoot.com right now between now and Father's Day to save 25%. Put in that code DAD25 at boldfoot.com. Look, they're your feet. Be bold. Thirst. It's a need, Marcus. You need to satisfy a real thirst. And what a better way than with a nice, fresh craft beer at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. And you can also visit Jamie's House of Music in Delco to get that very fresh and tasty Crooked Eye beer. Their music schedule's picked up at Jamie's House of Music. I follow them on Facebook, so you see a lot more shows going on there. And anytime they're open for shows, you can get your Crooked Eye there, get a growler, and take some home. Or you can head to Hatboro, and their schedule's picked up a lot, too. And my vinyl night is moving to its permanent home the second Tuesday of the month. Come and see us. Bring your vinyl if you want. Or I'll bring mine. You can't forget that Friday nights from 4 to 11, there's live music over at Crooked Eye and open mic night the first, third, and fifth Mondays of the month. First, third, fifth. I can't do math when I'm drinking at Crooked Eye. Well, the brews are cold and they're always fresh, always the favorites and something new on the board there at the brewery location in Hapro. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. We thank them for their support of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. You know, Ray, since we're talking about Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you heard the record or did you hear a song off the record on the radio and then buy the record because of what you heard on the radio? I had bought Changes and ended up right away buying Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars like within a week after getting Changes because I was like, I need more Bowie. Because <laughs> I'm thinking about how old you were then. I was moved to the bin because of Suffragette City, no doubt about it. The way that the rest of the record unfolded to me was as a listener. And when you finally get your head around the whole thing, you realize it's not about the single. Even though that was a pretty successful single for David Bowie, it's not about the single. Let's talk about the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. They set into the studio first in 71 with Ken Scott, again, who had worked with them on Hunky Dory. Ken, just an amazing guy. I read his book, and all I'll say is if you want to know about his slice of life when it came to producing and studios, especially if you're a microphone and gear geek. It's a great book from Ken Scott and I think Ziggy's in the title somewhere. <laughs> so if you type in Ken Scott and Ziggy. But he was with him on Hunky Dory and he's plugged in and I think that's one of those things that helps to create the momentum that we were talking about when they get into the studio for real in late 71. That's where most of the work was done. More work in February to finish things up. And that first session early Early in the life of Ziggy Stardust was actually a song I want to talk to you before we get into going through track by track. It's a song called It Ain't Easy, and I don't really know how it ended up on the record. A song written by Ron Davis, Davies, as people would say, Ron Davis. It's the end of side one, and it's just this energizing track that really came from out of nowhere. 
And I guess that was the starting point for the recording sessions, but the real meat of what Ziggy would become would come in those sessions later in the year and then into 72. So that's the genesis of it. And this is the period of time in David's career where he has done his thing with Harold Myers, right? And Tony DeFreeze has come in, main man has come in, and they've primarily taken over the direction and uh, management. And all I'll say is that Tony, for all of his flamboyant spending practices, which are well documented, he really was a Svengali of a manager. He was all about spinning the image at a time when image was everything. He was out there spinning the image of Bowie as this emerging rock star, not as a rock performer. He already was portraying him out there and having him portrayed as a rock star. And Bowie carried himself that way. So they got into recording and they're already in the mood. You know what I mean? They're already in the mood to make this record. And that to me is a big part of why the record became so successful. Why it sounds so goddamn good every time is they were ready. They'd been in the studio a lot in the last year, year and a half. They recorded Hunky Dory. They'd been on the road. So how were they ready after being so tired and so overworked in so many ways? And the fact that they put this work of brilliance out the way they did through all of this insanity and maelstrom that was around them is pretty incredible. David Hepworth in his book talks a lot about that with different stories, but that kind of the maelstrom. He gives you the maelstrom moments in a lot of stories. And all I'd say is that when they got locked in and they started doing these things, they were on a mission. They were not just hired. Whether you were in a band or you were an artist working with a couple of your primary collaborators, you were all on a mission. It was a different time and music was approached differently. And once the concept of Ziggy Stardust started to come together, I'm sure Tony and Bowie and Ken Scott were talking a lot about about it and it didn't happen in a vacuum the spiders from mars are absolutely incredibly valuable to the whole process now on that first session in 1971 having already contributed keyboards to previous projects for bowie rick wakeman did the harpsichord part on that on it ain't easy and his girlfriend who was one of his many girlfriends not rick's bowie's dana gillespie did the backing vocals that you hear along with bowie and the members of the spiders there's even trumpet from trevor and all kinds of different stuff and that's the different feel of that. I just heard that song when I first heard the record and I just went well, what the fuck is this? And that's after hearing Five Years and Soul Love and Moon Age Daydream and Starman. And then they jump into It Ain't Easy. So that's why I wanted to start there because that song is different from a lot of the other things. The rest of it is pure Bowie at his finest. And on the Rick Wakeman notes, they had asked Rick Wakeman to join the band and he declined because earlier that day, Yes asked him to join. I think he made a smart move there. His role in Yes is outlast the spiders from Mars, as it turns out. But he is he is a, an incredibly talented guy, and that's somebody we have to do a story about sometime. But man, you drop the needle if you're somebody who's been waiting, whether you're a kid from Philly or anywhere that had already turned on to David Bowie and his music, and five years comes in. Man, you think about the plaintive vocals Bowie gives you on the chorus, leading down the stretch, the way the band sets a tone that they didn't set on Hunky Dory. So many mothers sighing News had just come over We had five years left crying News guy wept and told us 
really dying. Cried so much, his face was wet. Then I knew he was not lying. I heard telephone, opera house, favorite melodies. Saw boys, toys, electric irons, and TVs. A brain hurt like a warehouse. It had no room to spare. I had to cram so many things to store. Everything in there, and all the fat, skinny people. It's a totally different sound, and one of the parts that stood out to me re-listening to this album from front to back, as you should listen to albums, was yes. Trevor Boulder's bass. It's so melodic and groovy throughout this entire song, and it really packs an emotional punch to it. More than Woody, he drives the bus on that one with that feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, man. And Woody, don't get me wrong, Woody's role in this is so important because he is maybe one of the most underrated drummers out there. He was a great drummer, and Bowie needed the musicians he had around him to pull this off. He couldn't have done it without these guys. It was the chemistry, it was the playing, it was their styles together, and that was along with Bowie's creativity, and then you have Ken Scott in the studio and everybody else who worked on it. Their magic together is what made this a brilliant album, and while Bowie took all the credit for it, he really had a lot of help from everybody else around him. Listen, Mick Woodmancy's feel is what we're talking about. He was dynamic. On no song might it be more apparent than on the next track on side one, Soul Love, which is a softer, lilting thing. You got Bowie, you know, laying on the the saxophone, and everybody's just kind of like working it together. And Woody's in there. Really, if you listen closely, the drums are understated on Soul Love, but it's still such an important part of the rhythm. Followed by Moon Age Daydream, a song that would have even more energy and life breathed into it on the David Live version, but it starts to spark concepts. You know, you've got three different concepts being expressed in song, and Moon Age Daydream puts one of those Bowie-esque type twists on it and takes you along for the ride. It's one of my favorite songs on the album, without a doubt. And Mick Ronson's guitar is wonderful, but it also shows the versatility of Woody Woodmancy because he's banging the crap out of those drums. He's hitting them very hard, and he's playing kind of like glam fused with metal, fused with punk a little bit in a weird sort of way. You hear a little bit of those styles. You hear some stoogy type of stuff here and there mixed in, but Woody's drums really, I think, also stand out on that song because it shows his versatility going from five years to soul love to moon age daydream you absolutely hear, you feel his range 
And he needed all of it because it was primarily a rock album or a rock concept, but there were all kinds of feels in the middle of it. And Starman, the next one's a perfectly good example where it starts off just like a like guitar feel and la, la, la. And then by the end, it's this driving force. And if you're the drummer or any of the players on that track, you have to kind of like cater to that and follow it and feel it and really push it through. And one of the biggest challenges to that is Ronson's role. And thank God for multi-track recording by them because of all the things and layers that he put on the, so all the tracks, but especially something like Starman. And then we already talked about It Ain't Easy, written by Ron Davies. I didn't really find much out on him, but that's how you wrap up side one of Ziggy Stardust. And you, if you're a listener at that point, you just kind of, whoo, yeah. right? I need a glass of water after that side. Holy or a bong cow. Hit. Wait yep. a minute. You need a bong hit. Wait a minute. Yeah, Wait something a minute. like that. With Starman, that was the first single on the album. And when a bunch of label executives originally heard Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, they hated it and were like, there's mm. no single on this record. And <laughs> David Bowie just looked at him and said, Starman. Well, you got to figure he ain't got the opportunity since they saw nothing to put in what he wanted. Now, somebody in the process there, I don't know who they all were at our time, but somebody went, well, that Space Oddity song is about space, stars, Starman, okay, yeah, yeah, Starman. Now, great song, don't get me wrong, but the B-side ends up winning the day, turning on this 14-year-old kid that says, oh yeah, oh yeah, he's done it, and got us into digging deeper into the record, creating zealotry for David Bowie. There are still kids, they're in their 60s now, <laughs> Big kids. from the Philadelphia area, they were the Sigma kids, they would go down every night when Bowie was making a young Americans record and just hang out for the chance, the odd chance, that they might see him and talk to him for a few minutes, which many of them did. And if any of them listen to this podcast, please, it's imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Just send us an email and let us know. We'd love to have you on the podcast to talk about that phenomena in our local history. Yeah, if you spent some time with David Bowie or got a word in with him, we definitely want to know what those words were. <laughs> because there's a lot of people who could tell you that yeah. they did. They were there. So that's where you are when you get to the end of Side One buddy and you've just had an enriching fulfilling energizing experience as a rock and roller right you put on side two and it starts with lady stardust a little bit more laid back all feel right and then in the star another song that just takes you out stardust and star tied together with ziggy stardust it's almost like those three were written together and then even maybe separated and made into multiple songs because of their connections and if you listen to lady stardust star then hang on to yourself and Ziggy Stardust, I think you might actually feel the tie the of flow. those three songs and why those three, the star songs, are connected. But Hang On To Yourself is beautiful. It's got that early punk sound in 
it. It's got even some of that early little bit of metal riffing. I think Mick Ronson's guitar is oh, just yeah. so fantastic in this song. The thing about that is, the thing about that thing is, that's one of the few songs on this record that you almost feel could have been on Honky Dory or Aladdin Sing. But there it is, right in the middle, making that connection. And that's probably why it ended up there. It makes you wonder if a lot of the songs that he wrote post Ziggy Stardust were already brewing in his brain. And maybe he had notes on some of these songs because you feel and you see ties and connections to all these songs. Even though he switched persona, there's still connections here and there that are small. I want to ask you one of those out of the blue questions that come up sometimes on this podcast. Okay. Do you think, taking the position of what you were just saying is true, do you think, since he had future ideas in his head, that he felt the only way that he could move on from this kind of mania for this artist as Ziggy was to kill Ziggy so that he could step forward to become the next character and Thin White Duke and everything else? Do you think that that was part of his thinking? Absolutely. I think it was Ken Scott who said after three or four takes, he gets bored. I think that might have made the same impact with the character, like, ah, after 18 months, two years, he's bored with it and he's going to move on to something else. So I think, yeah, he definitely, even though he connected the songs, I think he okay. already had a plan with moving the characters forward. The next song is the song Ziggy Stardust, an anthemic track, right? One of the great songs that kind of describes the whole thing that the story is about and it helps to pull together all the other pieces. Let me ask you something. The thing you just said about him moving on and all that, does it happen before or after? after you walk out on stage at a show and you look out and half the kids in the first 10 rows are looking exactly like you dressed as Ziggy or after that? Does it happen before he sees that or after it starts to happen? I think he starts to see it as it's happening. He's like, well, if they're me, then I have to move ahead and move on to the next one so that they can evolve into what I am as well or follow what I'm doing. But again, who knows? He was also one of those who just like to create and continue to create and continue to evolve and change. It was the B-side to the first single, became the A-side on rock radio. It propelled so much. The next song on side two is Suffragette City. And one of the things I just learned from reading Ken Scott's book is the horn sound that you think you hear on Suffragette City is actually Ronson working the ARP synthesizer to all of its unworldly maximums and pushing it to lay down that underbeat, that under sizzle on Suffragette City, and I think that that's a big part of what made it a fucking hit. Massive hit. 
And it definitely had shades of that early punk, too. I mean, it was faster than anything else on that, and it had more of a drive to it, just a pummeling drive, and you're just like, oh, yeah, those riffs, just magical. And I can see how that one took over Starman as far as popularity goes, because it's the one that really makes you shake your ass and move your booty. Rock and fucking roll, Marcus. Well, and I don't know who made the decision to put out Rock and Roll Suicide as the next single, but I hope it wasn't the guy who decided to make Suffragette City the B-side, because if they're making that decision, they could have really hurt things in the progress that David Bowie was making, because the record just took over and became an AOR hit. So all these freeform rock stations that liked David Bowie were in markets where he was really getting popular were playing multiple tracks, and uh, that's where you start to hear stuff like Hang On to Yourself on the radio, more Ziggy Stardust. I think over the years, Starman and Rock and Roll Suicide take a big backseat to songs like Suffragette City, Ziggy Stardust, and even five years on this album because the fans decided that they liked those songs better than the singles. And the radio guys did too. And that kind of pushed the whole thing in a different direction than the original intent was. But you know what RCA and Main Man were happy about? It became a success. And it had started to deliver on what the hype had promised. David Bowie was becoming a rock star. He over-delivered on Ziggy Stardust, without yes. a doubt. That album has completely outlived the character, the concept. It's an album that... The man! He outlived the man! Oh, absolutely. And the Ziggy Stardust concept is going to outlive David Bowie by many decades because of its chameleon-like relatability and the relevance predicting the end of the world. And then we feel like sometimes today we're coming close to the end of the world with some of the crazy things that are happening but this album influenced so many musicians and so many genres of music moving forward it had a huge influence on the whole underground alternative scene it had a huge influence on the punk scene moving forward it had an influence on pop music moving forward it really really hit the gamut and then fashion he had an impact on fashion on makeup on sex because of the andro aspect and the fact Absolutely. that at that time period he came out and said he was homosexual or he said he was gay to the media and just caused an insane frenzy. There were all of those areas. I just was- want to say one thing. I've read a lot about David and read different perspectives on it and all I could say is everything to get from where he was right before this through this and on to the next thing was a contrivance. Everything was a plan. When he mm-hmm. said that he was gay or bisexual it was to evoke the response to get the press, to get the ooh and the odds to create controversy. There were a lot of other points in his career where he did the same thing with other aspects of it. And he was a master at the craft of branding, personas, whatever you want to call it, right down to the heartbreaking last days of his life. So this is the point where David Bowie, the person deep down inside all that, realizes, I've got them right where I want them. And he did too. At the end of uh, side two, Rock and Roll Suicide, another song, by the way, it sounds way better on the David Lye version recorded at, at the Tower Theater. Just saying that. If they were looking for any song that they didn't put on the record that was recorded in these sessions, it had to be John, I'm Only Dancing. Just an amazing song. It, it was put out as a single, never, you know, it was kind of a, a wink and a nod to the gay community mm-hmm. that everything was groovy, you know? And yet they didn't put it on a record. It just hung out there for years as a rarity and then later, of course, got onto compilations and whatnot. So. Yeah, I first heard it on the changes record so that's where i first got my taste of uh john i'm only dancing 
I just have to exhale because we've been going on about this. And all I can tell you is that one of the things I didn't expect was to be this exhausted after talking about something that I love so much. This album has been a core favorite 100 albums, probably. I don't really do those lists, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. For me, for all these decades now, and it continues to bring joy every time I listen to it. And I've been listening to it a lot lately. Do I look more joyful than last time we got together? (laughs) Yes, you definitely look happier. And I love that joyful look on your face. And it takes you back to a time when this was all new and fresh. So that impact as well gives you sort of that younger, fresher feel. And yeah, it's amazing. Again, the power of music. Always present, always delivering, including on this episode about David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. Well, another one of those boxes that we had to check on the podcast that we said we got to do. (laughs) Check it off, man. Bowie, Ziggy, we did it. It's checked. I'll tell you what, if you have ever had any interaction with David Bowie, please share it. We would love to hear any interaction, any stories that you may have had with David Bowie, especially during the Ziggy Stardust era. We would love to know of your stories or in Philadelphia or anywhere that you may have run into Bowie. Email us at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can hit us up on our Facebook page, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, Imbalanced Histo on Twitter, and The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Instagram. Any of those sites, great ways to communicate, and we would love to hear from you. You know what I've realized as of late about the podcast? What? That the more episodes that we do that are kind of about David Bowie or Bowie adjacent, the more episodes that we will continue to do about Bowie as we go through the the years, hopefully on the podcast, because I never, ever get tired of talking about it or listening to it or digging in and finding out what the real story is, which is part of what we try to do here. So that's why we're always asking you guys for what you know or what you experienced. So thanks for your part in that. It is part of the reason we do this podcast, sit here and have fun talking about David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, or any of the other subjects that we talk about. When it comes down to it, that's really like our core mission is to learn and to help others learn about this music that we love. And we just keep learning here almost two years into it now. I feel like I'm working towards a professorship of some sort because of all the learning we're doing. And I hope that in my older years, I can still continue to remember all of this stuff for conversations down the line. Because Ah, ah, but if we can't, like Rudy Sarzo told us a few episodes back, that's why podcasts are great is because you can always go back and re-listen and relearn to anything that's out there and, and his podcast is something that I gotta go find I got meant to mention that to you yeah he's from, uh, when we talked to him oh my god we gotta get him back on soon Rudy if you're listening we love you and uh, we'll reach out soon and get him on for an episode so many things to discuss so many facets of rock and roll to dig into that's what we do here every week so I want to thank everybody at Crooked Eye for uh, all they're doing to make it through the pandemic and uh, still make those amazing brewskis that they do the creativity, man. We got to get around there once. Uh, once we all get vaccinated and stuff, we got to go around for a pint. Yes, I can't wait for another pint of Crooked Eye. Oh, well, that'll do it on this episode. All about Ziggy and David, and uh, how much we love this man and his music and this album. So let's sign off for now because we've got other research digs to begin. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And you know, you've listened, you've told friends. We thank you, and that's why we are the imbalanced history of rock and roll. An amazing year, Marcus, 1972, and the release of David Bowie's The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was just one piece of an incredible year of great rock and roll. 
I look forward to sharing our episode about the year 1972 and all of the great albums that were released that year as well. Keep your eye on your podcast apps and the Pantheon Podcast Network for when it's going to land. That's going to do it for this special edition, 1972. What a year of amazing music. Good to celebrate a little bit of it. And one of our favorites, Bowie, here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.